0: Yes, it's the place to be for franchisors and those wishing to franchise their business. Um, I'm delighted today to have a very special guest here to join us, uh, Emma Jervis from Legal Vision. She's going to help us clarify all the relevance of legal agreements in franchising and debunk some of the misconceptions. I've called this segment uh, today Legal Agreements in Franchising, Relationship Between the Franchisor and the Franchisee. Um, Legal Vision, if you haven't heard of them, are Australia's fastest-growing legal services provider. Uh, They're offering high-quality, cost-effective solutions for Australian businesses looking for legal assistance, advice, documentation. Rather like Franchise Simply, Legal Vision's modus operandi is very simple. They operate online and often remotely, meaning they can work quickly and maintain efficiencies. Uh, Emma heads up their franchising team, acting for franchisors and franchisees, in the back end of the work things like preparing franchise agreements and on the front end when you look at mediation disputes those sorts of things Um, Emma's role is to uh, make sure Legal Vision is a one-stop franchising shop and that's how she treats her clients Uh, so she offers direct and concise advice in all areas of operating their business Um, she's had extensive and invaluable legal experience including acting on some significantly large franchise disputes in the federal court system, best place to learn, and she uses her background in litigation to guide dispute resolution processes and aims to find commercial resolutions that work for everybody in the area of franchising, avoiding, wherever possible, the need for court intervention. Um, Emma, welcome. Thanks very much for being available today.
1: Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you
0: for having me. And anything you want to add to the bio there I may have overlooked?
1: Uh, Not really. We are obviously, as you said, Australia's fastest growing uh, law firm, but also Australia's fastest growing franchise practice. Um, So we do have an extensive knowledge, not only from a franchisee perspective, but also a franchisor perspective um, and are able to assist franchisors, not just with franchise documents, but also any other areas of law that might become relevant. Things like the strain of trade law, employment law. Um, So I make sure that I'm up to date on all other ancillary areas of law and that
0: that's um, across the Legal Vision team. Excellent. I know we'll be talking about some of those things in another broadcast later because there's so many areas to cover. A lot of interesting and invaluable information. So we're going to go into some of the finer points uh, shortly, but first, just to give you some clarity, can you explain briefly for the listeners who may have very limited understanding or knowledge of franchise legals Mm -hmm. the relationship or the relevance between a franchise agreement and a disclosure document.
1: Okay, sure. So the franchise agreement is in essence a contract. It's a document that sets out the rights and responsibilities of both parties to that contract, um, being the franchisor and the franchisee. Um, It's often quite a lengthy document and quite a detailed document, given the nature of a franchise relationship is quite complex. And it will be for a set term being the term that the franchisee is entitled to operate the franchise agreement. Um, A disclosure document, on the other hand, I like to describe it more as an information sheet. And it's it's a document that's prescribed under the Franchising Code of Conduct, um, whereby the franchisor has to provide specific and very detailed information in some respects to any franchisee or potential franchisee. Um, So things like uh, all of the costs of operating and setting up that particular franchise. Information pertaining to the franchise network generally, including uh, the number of franchisees, the number of terminations, all of those sorts of things. And a little bit of background as to the, uh, the franchise or themselves, including who their directors are, what sort of business experience they have when the um, franchise actually started operating. Just to give that little bit more further, further information to a franchisee.
0: Right, yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's almost 20 years now since it was first introduced as a voluntary code. And I must say, when we had offices across the country in those days with the Franchise Alliance, there was a, a lot of disquiet in the franchise or community. They saw it as being intrusive. But uh-huh. uh, we, we stood out a little bit unpopularly because we yeah. supported it. Because as people who were helping franchise find new franchisees, Mm -hmm. We found it invaluable information because it created a level playing field Mm -hmm. and it gave franchisees a chance to really make comparisons between competitive products or even non-competitive, whatever they were looking at. And and it's head and shoulders above what people will find if they're buying a conventional business. So to my mind, um, it's actually been a tremendous move. And uh, While sometimes some aspects may seem a bit onerous to some, the fact is if there's things there they require, you're not prepared to disclose that I question you know, your, your sincerity and transparency oh, and, uh, and simple as that. So, and, uh, but people do often get misunderstandings, So that's why we'll run through a little bit of that later if we have time. But what I'd like to do now is go through some of the basic terms and conditions that you can expect to find in, in any good franchise agreement. Maybe you can sure. just run through, you know, things like the term of the franchise agreement, for example.
1: Sure. So, so typically a franchise agreement will be for a prescribed term. Um, And there often is also a renewal term. Somewhere between, say, three and ten years, depending on the industry, plus another three and ten years, um, are the typical terms that I see in franchise agreements every day. Um, Now, the franchise agreement, it's not enough just to say what the term and what the renewal term is. It will also have to set out, for example, any preconditions to that term actually commencing, any preconditions to the franchisee being able to renew that term. Um, any clauses that will survive for example the expiration of the term so just because the franchise agreement insofar as the term has come to an end it doesn't mean that all of the obligations of the parties necessarily have come to an end so there are a number of sort of sub issues that need to be considered in determining what the term is.
0: Uh, absolutely and that's where it's a lot more than just the legal application and uh, where our members of of the franchise of franchise simply will know we go into a lot of the nitty gritty because it's it's how it affects you on the coal face when it comes to these occasions arising that are so important. And it does vary from business to business is what perhaps their their methods may likely to be. So uh, it was, it's a very, very valid comment. So um what about where you're in a bricks and mortar situation, you know, um maybe it's in a shopping centre or a retail strip, that sort of thing. Um, what, what sort of details do you need to specify in the Franchise Agreement?
1: Sure. Um, again, it's not enough to simply name the relevant location, be it, you know, Shop 24 of Westfield, Miranda. The, the Franchise Agreement needs to go into a lot more detail as to um, what the location actually means, any warranties or assurances given with respect to the, that location, and also the legal rights of the franchisee with respect to their ongoing use of that location. Um, so it's it's... There's two common models where there's a bricks and mortar store and that's for there to be um, either a lease where the franchisee takes the lease directly or a license whereby the franchisor will actually take the lease and then license the ongoing right of use um, to the franchisee. I know having dealt a lot in in the retail sector, it's quite common for some of the big landlords, you know, your stock lands, your Westfields, to actually prefer to enter into a lease with the franchisor directly, in which case that license becomes another valuable document.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of strategy behind that. Um, Mm -hmm. Franchisors used to readily register all these sites and take them themselves. But of course, suddenly you're accumulating lots of bond money you've got outstanding and liabilities so hence these different methods have become popular again that's something we'll actually talk about in another in another conversation because sure. um, I think that in itself is, is a topic that's there certainly worth 20 minutes of conversation so um, with, with regards to franchising and fees there's a lot of different terminology used it, yes. it can be a bit bewildering and so on so can you just explain some of the, the key ones that people should at least make themselves Regionally familiar with Emma.
1: So there are limitless number of fees that can be charged to franchisees, and I've seen some obscure ones in my time, but there are some that typically come up in each each franchise agreement. Um, So the first one is obviously the initial franchise fee, which is generally a lump sum upfront payment for the right to operate the franchise. Um, In looking at the initial franchise fee, one thing to consider is whether a deposit is payable, in which case it's usual for that deposit to then be applied to the initial franchise fee. Um, You might then have an ongoing fee. You can have a model whereby it's a fixed fee, you know, $150 per week, or you can have it as a percentage-based fee, in which case it's usually a percentage of gross revenue. Um, So they're your two main two main fees uh, that you're paying basically for the right to operate as a franchisee. But there are a number of other specific fees, things like training fees, whereby you have to pay an additional fee for ongoing training. Things like a renewal fee, where you have to pay an additional fee um, at the time of renewal. Site selection fees, where the franchisor will actually participate in finding a site for the franchisee. Um, A transfer or an assignment fee, where the franchisee seeks the franchisor's consent to basically sell their franchise as a going concern and there's a fee attributable to that. Um, there can also be other things like security amounts that are, ma- are held back by the franchisor um, at the end of the franchise term for a set period of time.
0: Yeah, as you say, there's a myriad really. It's a matter of what you what you have that's appropriate in your business is an ongoing um, cost that the, the franchisee right. can legitimately be asked or expected to pay. and uh, I mean, it can be for software and so on, can't it? The whole yeah.
1: Oh, definitely. Uh, what, having seen a rise in technology-based franchises, that software fee is becoming more and more prevalent, particularly where yeah. the software has been uh, created or designed or customised by the franchisor, and it's right at the heart of the franchise business.
0: It yeah, leads me there, uh, just, just to mention that we won't go into it today because it, it is a case-by-case situation, but the relevance of, uh, of websites and how they are managed and how the allocation of clients that are sourced through websites and so on is something that everyone needs to be conscious of these days. But uh, the point that people always ask a lot about, and I think it's important they understand that I'll ask you now, is with regards to marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that's prescribed in part under the um, Franchise Code. So can you perhaps explain a little bit from a layman's point of view of how the marketing fund operates, Emma?
1: Sure. So as you say, Brian, marketing funds are are governed um, by specific provisions contained in the Code. And if a franchisor is going to or... um, will seek to introduce a marketing fund at some point in time. It's very important that they're clear of what their legal obligations are under the Code. Generally, a marketing fund should be operated completely separate to any other monies or revenues that are received by the franchisor. Um, And that goes down to having separate bank accounts, keeping separate financial statements, operating it almost as its own independent business. So generally how a marketing fund works is that there'll be a, a clause within the franchise agreement itself that requires all franchisees to contribute to the fund. It can be, again, a fixed amount per week or a percentage of gross revenue. And it's quite common to see somewhere between the two and 4% as a percentage-based contribution to the marketing fund. Those monies then go into a collective pool and are applied for marketing or promotional activities to the benefit of the franchise network generally.
0: And, and when the franchisor operates some outlets themselves, mm-hmm. um, because that's, that's something that people often don't appreciate, um, they need to take this marketing fund into account, don't they, so that there's an equity from the point of view of the franchisees and the franchisors, if you like, notionally franchised or corporate outlets.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, that's correct. You, you can't have a situation where um, you're having a proportion of uh, the individual stores or individual businesses basically funding the entirety of the marketing or promotional activities for the benefit of everyone
0: right okay now also the other area that's uh, very pertinent is local area marketing uh, which uh, not all franchisors require their, their
1: sorry Ryan it's, it's cutting out again can you repeat that last question oh,
0: okay yeah certainly <laughs> Um, One one area that um, not all funds um, uh, address is local area marketing, where that may be made in different ways, even directly by the franchisee. How is that generally addressed?
1: Sure. So offer a, a local area marketing requirement um, will, as you say, be dealt with differently to a marketing fund. And it's actually more administered by the franchisee themselves, or it can be administered by uh, the franchisor, or who is reimbursed then by the franchisee. So it's quite typical these days to have a clause within the franchise agreement that, for example, requires... Uh, a new franchisee to spend a certain amount on a new local area marketing campaign just to launch their business when they start and that can be simple things like letterbox drops um, publications in local newspapers and it can also have a have an ongoing uh, requirement for example to spend a certain amount of money uh, per quarter per month whatever it is on local area marketing okay
0: Sorry, there's something else to add there?
1: No, as I said, generally that isn't dealt with under the marketing marketing fund per se, which is, as I say, dealt with in turn by the code. So it's quite important that franchisors put in place systems to basically audit the compliance with that by their franchisees.
0: Excellent. Now, you mentioned earlier um, when we were talking about fees generally, about training, um, Mm -hmm. there's, of course, the initial training um, how do you how do you feel that's best illustrated in a franchise agreement in relation in comparison with you know those ongoing training fees or, or where someone indeed may be, may be requested to have additional training because they're not meeting their um, their franchisor's expectations?
1: Sure. So this is an area that's uh, often dealt with not particularly well in franchise agreements that I see all the time. Um, And it's quite important that the franchise agreement is clear as to what training is required, what training is available, and what the associated cost of that training will be. And those costs need not just be the fee payable to the franchisor, but also the costs of travel for any training requirements or things like that. Um, So the franchise agreement should detail what is included um, or what is payable by way of an additional fee upfront, and then also what the franchisee um, can ask for on an ongoing basis. It's quite common for a franchise agreement to have, for example, a, a responsible manager or a nominated person provision, being the person that is in is in the business, looking after the business day to day, and that the and the franchise agreement will then provide that if there is a change in that nominated person or responsible manager, they should.
0: Um, undertake training as well. Right, okay. Um, Now, um, moving on from that, um, I'll I'll interrupt with another question here, and uh, it's one that um, takes quite a bit of understanding, is the the flexibility of documentation. Uh, People often think they can go in and change a document, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps during its term. Uh, Mm -hmm. What are the parameters around that? Um, How would you explain that for some clarity for people, Emma?
1: Sure. So when you enter into a franchise agreement, same as when you enter into any other contract, you are agreeing to be bound by the terms of that agreement for the entire term of its operation. So to expect to be able to, I guess, unilaterally and retrospectively amend a franchise agreement is perhaps a little misguided, and you're always better to seek any amendments or any clarity up front before anyone signs on the dotted line. Um, franchise agreement is a contract like any other and it can be subject to negotiation and amendment like any other contract that's entered into in a commercial setting. Um, one exception to that or one common, I guess, carve out to that is that franchise agreements will typically refer to an operations manual, which is the document that sets out the day-to-days of how the particular business is to run. Um, insofar as its systems and things are concerned. So it's quite common for that manual firstly to be binding by virtue of reference in the franchise agreement itself, but also for the franchise agreement to make note that the manual can be updated throughout the term of the franchise and any, any of those updates then become binding on the franchisee.
0: Now, that's the area which often causes confusion because uh, what would you say are the parameters? I mean, one can change an operations manual quite dramatically, um, but what are the parameters that are fair and reasonable within the, the term of, a, of an existing franchise agreement, for example, once it's underway?
1: Sure. So we're actually in, I guess, an interesting time right now with respect to that that very question, insofar as we've just had the new laws introduced uh, in November of this year um, as to the unfair contract provisions. Um, and also the fact is that franchisors and franchisees are both now bound by by statutory obligations of good faith. There's, Uh, contained in the code so uh, from a practical perspective if there are to be changes to either the operations manual or the franchise agreement it's important that the firstly the ability to make those changes is clearly set out and for example in the franchise agreement you might have a provision that says we can make changes but we have to provide you with 60 days notice of those changes or if we amend the list of approved products you'll still have 60 days to sell out existing stock. However it works as a matter of practicality, it's important that it's very, very clearly set out in the franchise agreement. And it's also important that in implementing a change that a franchisor is mindful not only of their rights and the benefit to be derived by them of such a change, but also the effect of of the proposed change on the franchisee.
0: Right. So, um, so there there are new provisions there that you'll need to take account of or are taking account of, I guess, in, in franchise agreements or new ones that are drawn up currently.
1: Yes, that's correct. So this, these laws came into play on the 12th of November this year, the unfair contract laws. We're in a little bit of a grey area at the moment insofar as we don't have any legislative decisions, sorry, judicial decisions um, as to how those laws will be implemented. But basically any standard form contract, um, will fall under the realm of these new laws. Um, and so it's important that if, if a franchisor is issuing a document which is just a point-blank, enforceable document, which the operations manual generally is, it's very rare to negotiate the terms of an operations manual, um, that it is applied fairly.
0: Right, I'm with you. OK, so at this point, it's a matter of judgement and seeking appropriate advice. Correct. You know, impartial advice, I guess. Yeah. So, um <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you on that one, um, at, uh, because that is an area that people don't appreciate that there is a realm of feasibility of flexibility there, I suppose. Um, an area which is a vast one, that has is, is, is actually had more and more importance in recent years as people have realised the implications. Is it's a topic of territories mm-hmm. because uh, um, obviously that that ultimately determines limits or opens. From the point of view the size of the group nationally which from the franchisor's point of view means the number of outlets the number of ongoing franchise revenue from royalties Mm etc etc um how how do you recommend that uh, territories are addressed in the franchise agreement emma
1: sure so it should be very very uh clear in the franchise agreement the extent of exclusivity if any that's afforded to the franchisee by virtue of the franchise agreement Um, So it's quite common to have, for example, an exclusive territory that might just be the relevant shopping centre in a retail or food-based franchise. It can be a suburb, it can be a list of postcodes, or it can be a a geographic, for example, radius from the premises itself. Um, But whichever model is adopted, it's important that the franchise agreement is very, very clear as to what exclusivity is afforded and where. Um, Another point that I always make to franchisors is to consider in what cases it's just simply not beneficial for the franchise network generally to maintain that exclusivity. And exceptions can be, for example, if a particular franchisee is simply underperforming and they're, they're not really meeting the demands of the market within that territory, do you want to really continue to give them exclusivity? And, for example, having things like minimum performance criteria can allow the franchise to monitor that. Uh, Another example of a carve-out provision is whereby a franchisee is given an exclusive territory, but only to the extent that they can exercise, for example, a first right. So they might have an exclusive territory within a five-kilometre radius of a particular premises. Um, but if the franchisor then wants to open um, another another franchise business within that five-kilometre radius, the franchisee themselves will have the first right of refusal to obtain that new business. And if they don't exercise that first right, the franchisor can then open up anyway. So it's, it's very important to be very, very clear what the actual rights are of the franchisee.
0: It's a good point, actually, in mentioning that. You bring something to mind that people often don't understand And it's more the franchisees or prospective franchisees that perhaps ask this question, but the franchisors amongst us listening, rather the vast majority, or prospective franchisors, want to know how to answer this one. It's uh, with regards to non-exclusive territories. What what do you, how would you describe the pros and cons of non-exclusive territories, and where might they be appropriate? Emma,
1: sure. So there's a number of, particularly the larger franchise or brands, just will not point blank grant exclusivity and i guess the reasons for that include brand presence and particularly if you're you're trying to grow a nationally recognizable brand you don't want to be stopped from opening in a new shopping center that's developed within the next few years um and you want to be able to to basically saturate the market to the extent that it becomes a brand everybody knows and is familiar with
0: right okay all right i appreciate that so um um, now, from that point of view, um, we then move into the whole heart and soul of, uh, of any business and any franchise is intellectual property. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the, the raison d'être. It's why you have a franchise really is to protect that intellectual property and, and monetize it. Mm-hmm. How, also, one of the best ways that a franchise or can protect their their IP and uh, what are the limitations on it, if, if any at all? In fact,
1: sure. So there's a number of practical. Um, tools that a franchisor can use. Firstly, it's making sure, it sounds obvious, but making sure that they've registered all of the correct trademarks, making sure that they own all of the relevant domain names that might be per- applicable to their franchise business, making sure that all of the documents that they deem confidential are simply marked confidential, so it, it can't be disputed later that a, a document was confidential. Um, it's also very advisable from the outset to get Um, a franchisee or a prospective franchisee to sign a confidentiality agreement so that your IP is protected. Um, And then in the franchise agreement itself, to have quite clear confidentiality provisions detailing how that confidential information can be used, um, setting out that that confidential information cannot be used after the term of the franchise agreement. Having in place properly drafted restraint of trade clauses, for example, can also then be used to protect that confidential information. Um, and similarly, in the operations manual, having a little bit more specific detail as to how confidential information or private information should be dealt with.
0: Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very, very important area. Now, people sometimes ask me or say, look, I haven't got a trademark registered. Now, that may be because they've never actually applied for it, or maybe the name is one that's considered to be a generic term, for example, which is not unusual. Um, What's the relevance, how does that affect their wish to franchise their business, Emma? Does it, does it apply constraints or...? Um...
1: It does insofar as a franchisee who is basically paying an amount of money and agreeing to a fixed-term, long-term contract, um, they want to have that protection, that, that the brand is there and it's usable at law and there, there can't be a dispute. Um, so even if, for example, the name can't be trademarked, it would be a good idea then to trademark the logo, just so that there can be no dispute that that's able to be used across the franchise network.
0: Right. Okay. All right. I appreciate that. And then again, that's a whole it's a whole topic yes. on itself, isn't it? So we won't go too far into that. We're covering a lot of ground, which is great. There's some really valuable information and feedback, and I uh, like the clarity of what we're what we're. Um, what we're extracting here. So when it comes to another area that people often don't give any thought to, mm-hmm. you know, they're insurance. Mm-hmm. So um, from the point of view of you know the franchisor um, and the franchisees, what insurances they need to hold and what the pros and cons again, basically.
1: Sure. So in this respect, um, it's quite important that the franchise agreement and the disclosure document both detail exactly what insurance policies are a mandatory requirement. Um, of of operation of this particular franchise business and also that as a matter of practicality, uh, the franchisor puts in place a system of ensuring that they have, for example, the the renewal certificates and those sorts of things on file for each and every franchisee. Um, Obviously, insurance is there to protect against risk and as a franchisor, you want to protect against any risk that those franchisees' businesses are going to be under some sort of external threat. Um, So ensuring that all of the policies that could be required are a requirement of operation of the franchise is very important.
0: Right, yeah. Uh, that's one of the reasons I must have always favoured using a, a, a broker that's right. reputable and that's been researched to uh, provide you perhaps the best value, but also because then you know that this is being applied because... You're not leaving each franchisee to do it themselves. It, it is a nightmare trying to chase up insurance's figures, isn't
1: it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and look, you don't want to be in a position where even the basics are forgotten about. Workers' compensation, plate glass insurance. There are so many different types of insurance. And if you are very, very clear in your franchise agreement what specific policies have to be taken out or what insurable risks have to be insured, insured against, there can't be any dispute later on.
0: Right. Um, you mentioned briefly earlier about performance criteria in other words you know, what are the parameters that you can reasonably um acquire in a franchise agreement for franchisees from that point of view emma
1: sure so uh, a performance criteria um, is an ind- in a cent- a set of for example quantitative um, data, it can be based on revenue, it can be based on growth of the franchise, it can be based on customer numbers, a whole spectrum of, of different factors can be included in the minimum performance criteria. Um, insofar as putting that criteria together, it's very important for the franchise to think carefully about uh, what is required for the for the franchisee to be successful, to be able to make a go of this business. Um, and set what are very, very realistic minimum performance criteria and set those minimum performance criteria in a way that is uh, easily ascertainable by the franchisee so they know exactly what it is that they have to do.
0: E- Excellent. Okay, yeah, And there's a lot that, that's very powerful and I think it's 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 a great motivator as well for people. So um, we've got a lot of invaluable information we've extracted there um, and thank you for that. So what I'd like to do is flip back to a point I mentioned early on and that is the disclosure document. Mm-hmm. Maybe in the, um, the short time we've got remaining, could you just run through some of the, the, the details from the point of view of the, the, the relevance of the disclosure document and the sort of things that are, uh, that are required?
1: Sure. So as I said before, a disclosure document, I always describe it as almost like an information statement, and it's an invaluable tool. Um, in the franchising world, and it's it's a point of reference for any incoming or prospective franchisee. Um, and it's almost a document that will assist them with, for example, undertaking their due diligence. So the disclosure document is a prescribed form, and um, the code sets out exactly what information has to be in there, and it is quite comprehensive. Um, the sorts of topics that are covered are, as I said, the background experience of the franchisor, um, any litigation that the franchisor is subject to, um, details as to... The network of franchisees, uh, the intellectual property requirements of the franchise, uh, details as to the sites or territories, um, the provision of supply of goods and services, uh, marketing and other activities, uh, whether the franchise agreement can be unilaterally varied. Uh, It also details, for example, the the arrangements to apply at the end of the franchise agreement, what happens and what is each party obliged to do uh, in the event of termination. So it's a very important document. Um, As a general rule, that document has to be updated annually uh, within four months of the end of each financial year, Um, and it has to be provided as part of the set of documents to any prospective franchisee who then has to acknowledge receipt of the disclosure document to comply with the Code
0: yep yeah, so it 's an important part of the process um, Yeah, absolutely and um, now, I suppose in, in looking beyond that i don 't know we 're drawing towards the close of our, our conversation anything else you 'd like to add um, emma that you feel you've you 've missed there or that i haven 't asked you about
1: not really i I guess it 's important for any or just to understand how very, very important the franchise documents are. Um, they are the contract, and they are the disclosure document that set in place the, the contractual rights and obligations of both parties. And when you think that a franchise will typically last, you know, between five and ten years, with another five and ten year renewal term, um, they're going to be enforceable for a long time.
0: Right. yeah, that, that's absolutely a fair comment. Well, look, we, we've covered a lot of ground. I've really enjoyed talking to you in this in this um, in this podcast today, um, and um, you certainly answered all my current questions and there's been a lot of invaluable knowledge now we will be having some more conversations with regard to a couple of topics particularly licensing versus franchising so the pros and cons so anyone that's anxious to know a bit more about that please get in touch with me and we can certainly get that conversation up and running but we will be doing a further recording on that but also another one probably looking at intellectual property as well so uh, anyone has any questions please don't hesitate to get in touch with me and I'll organise an introduction to, um, to to Emma so that she can have a chat with you. Um, now, um, I suppose in wrapping up, really, there's nothing more to, to say. Um, just to thank Emma for her generous time and uh, to say that I hope you've enjoyed being at the place for franchisors and those wishing to franchise their business. Look forward to speaking to you again soon on another franchise radio show. Thanks, Brian. All
1: right.
0: Whoops. <laughs> okay, thanks very much indeed, Emma. That's great.
1: No worries. Is that
0: okay? Um, Is that the sort of I didn't know whether I. Oh yeah, no, spot that. on. No, it was nice. You, you, you kept it rolling. It was nice and relaxed, and um, we're, we're well, well within our time schedule. That's great.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: cool. Um, so I will be in, in the new year talking about these other areas, but I, I guess that on the on the license on the the aspect of leasing, for example, it may be that's more with with Emma Houston. I'm not sure yeah. so yeah, the, lease, well, the leasing,
1: um, the specifics of, for example, retail leasing would be, yeah. but I, I'm certainly able to do the franchise versus licence.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. that's it's an important stuff. one, and it's, yeah. it's something that I find probably 25% of the people I talk to ask about that. And,
1: yeah, and a lot of people get it wrong
0: as, well, as so. Absolutely. Well, yeah, the, we all know that people say, I can save myself some money, I can yeah. keep life simple. They don't realise it's, it's not just the legalities, it's the practical fact of the that franchise in my view is worth a lot more money than a license yeah. uh, when it comes to reselling the business from their point of view. But we'll cover all that later. When we get round to that, I've got a, um, um, an email I send out with pros and cons and that sort of thing. So there's plenty there for us to, mm-hmm. to talk about. So right, we'll leave that there now. That's fantastic. Thanks again. No. Uh, have, a, have a lovely Christmas and uh, we may well be in touch. We don't get back till the 8th or the ninth, but I'll be keeping an eye and I see that you're catching up with uh, Jen. Yeah,
1: look, I, I apologise for what time. happened on Friday. It's um, we've just got some new staff members, and I just think it was a misunderstanding as to what yeah. was required. We've we've actually taken some uh, some guys have come across from DC Strategy. I don't know oh, if yes. you've yeah. heard of them. Oh, yeah.
0: I've, I've heard of them all
1: right.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So they're they're shedding some staff, are they?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So oh. I've got uh, Andrew is um, on my team now. Um, I love it. Having
0: okay. he's a sort of associate level about four or five years, right? Okay, yeah. yeah. You know, well, Rod Young was the founder of that, going back way into the early into the the eighties when um, we got our previous fran- franchise alliance. Mm. So it was called franchise relationships. I can't remember the name of the business now, um, but anyway, yeah. And that morphed when he joined up with uh, with, with Deacons. Mm. But, uh, no, that's interesting to hear. Okay. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. No need for any more fantastic. industry chatter. Um, fantastic. Um,
1: we'll have a fantastic Christmas. Have a good break. Thank you. Yeah,
0: thanks very much. And I'll, I'm sure we're going to uh, grow our relationship next year. There's lots of opportunities out there for us.
1: Okay. okay. Thanks, thanks Brian. Bye. Bye-bye.